Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good evening. Once again, uh, we're coming back to... David and a series on David tonight. We want to talk about David as a worshiper. And I know not every psalm is written by David. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I wonder, just just to kind of get warmed up tonight, if uh, you have a favorite psalm. Anybody have a favorite? Psalm 37. Okay, keep that in mind, Jeremy. Don't look at it just yet. Anybody else have a favorite psalm? You want to go to head-to-head with Jeremy? Yes? Okay. All right. And uh, don't look at it. Are you willing to go head-to-head with Jeremy? We're going to see how many verses of that we can quote. Are you Are you conceding? <laughs> conceding the win? Who'd like to go head-to-head with Jeremy and... Uh, match up to quote. Anybody? You're going to say Psalm 23? Okay. Okay, Miss Evelyn is going to say Psalm 23. Jeremy, do you want to start Psalm 37? <laughs> Let me start you off here. That's okay. I, I was just testing you guys. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Psalm 37, right? For like the grass, they will soon wither. The green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Good. Anybody else want to just tell us you don't have to quote? Yeah, go Go ahead. Thank you, Paula. Anybody else? You just want to name your song, your psalm. They're all for you, by the way. But, well, all right. Tonight we're talking about David as a worshiper. I think my my favorite psalm probably is uh, somewhere around uh, 46, maybe um, 77. Did you say 77? I like that one, too. Uh, there's There's a lot of good psalms there. Psalm 3 is really good. It's when David's on the run, and he uh, is dependent upon the Lord every day for safety and provision. And so there's there's some beautiful things in all of that. Uh, tonight I want to start with the thought that David was a worshiper, and this is the first fact about him before anything else. Uh, we, know, we know David as a shepherd. We know him uh, as a fugitive. We know him as a giant slayer. We know him as a king. But the first thing about him, and I think this is the most important thing, is that he was a worshiper. And so that precedes and I think also creates all of that. Being the worshiper is the most important thing about him, and it made the other areas of his life possible. Uh, Because he was a great worshiper, he was a great man. And I don't think you can have uh, great men or women of God without them being worshipers. Okay, so uh, I said that as if we're talking about somebody else, but let's say that about ourselves. That we can't be great men and women of God the way that we're supposed to be unless we're worshipers. And so I chose to look at uh, this particular aspect of David's life next because uh, it's pervasive throughout his life. It's obvious that David had been a worshiper his whole life and was one uh, by the time that he moved into the palace with Saul, which is early on, and I think he was all the way to the end of his life. And so I have to think, in my imagination, as I imagine David as a shepherd out there watching the sheep as a teenager, 
that one of the things he must have done to pass time was write songs and play his his uh, musical instrument uh, and give glory to God. And I think out of that grew a depth of faith, a depth of relationship, a depth of understanding as as he was drawing close to God in those times. And, and by the way, I didn't mention this uh, last week, but during the period of Judges, Israel Israel was a really dark place. There was a lot of dark stuff that was happening. If you read Judges 19, that's a, an exa- 18 and 19, that's an example of that. But simultaneously, it seems like the region around Bethlehem was a hot spot for uh, devotion to the Lord. And so it's not long after the period of the Judges that David and his family, you know, they proceed from Boaz and Ruth and and Obed and, and Jesse and, and then David. So there's a family, I think, legacy uh, that's God-oriented. And I think that probably helped lead to who David was. Okay, so I wanted to look at this idea of David as a worshiper because I think that's what he was his whole life. Um, that David was a musician as well established as one of the historical uh, facts of the Old Testament. And uh, you can see that in several places. We'll look at some aspects of that in just a little bit. But he wrote Psalms out of his experience. Um, he's credited with, uh, well, how many Psalms are there? Let's start with that. 150. So uh, he's credited with any, uh, and I've, I counted 73, but I read somewhere 74. So uh, take 74 as if I may have missed one. But that's just under half the Psalms are written by David. Nobody else wrote more psalms than David. He's the most prolific uh, worship writer in all of Scripture. And so he wrote all of these these psalms. And I think it will be valuable to keep in mind as we look at David's life that, that David's songs went with him wherever he was, and they came out of his experience. And so as he is running from King Saul, and he's fleeing day to day with, it seems in one instance, um, Saul and his band are right around the corner, and David and his band are just slipping away as they come around, that he's singing songs that relate to that experience. He he goes to bed at night under stress, and he wakes up in the morning and realizes the Lord has sustained him. And so these songs go with him. They go with him into the palace. And when it comes time to reinstitute an institution that had been broken under Saul's leadership, David was the one that reinstituted temple worship. They didn't have temple yet. Tabernacle worship. Temples in Solomon's day. But uh, he reinstituted tabernacle worship and felt that it was important that they follow through. And not only did he uh, reinstitute what the books of Moses told us should happen, but he expanded upon it and said that this is what the organization of the temple worship should look like. So uh, he's a warrior king and he's a musician. He loves God. He's a worshiper. So we see these things about David, and I think it tells us something that's very important about great, a great man of God and what kind of people we should be, that uh, we shouldn't just be uh, whatever it is that we are, like we're maybe moms and dads and brothers and sisters and engineers and, uh, you know, people who work with our hands. We're not those things. We're primarily called to be worshipers. Are you with me on that? Now, that's our orientation towards God is, is to be worshipers. Well, you're going to notice, and we'll take a look at some of these as we go along. So maybe we could start with Psalm 3, and we'll look at some, some of these uh, categories. I'm going to call these the, the forms of songs that, um, that David wrote. You'll notice some interesting things at the beginning of these psalms. Psalm 3, for example. Anybody there yet? That wants to be there. Okay, Psalm 3. What's the first thing it says after the introduction, or after it says Psalm 3? Oh, sorry. Before that even. A Psalm of David. Okay, Psalm. Okay, so this is, you'll notice sometimes at the beginning of these Psalms, there's little uh, little titles that are there. And this one has a Psalm of David, and the Hebrew word for that is mizmor. So we think maybe psalm ought to be the Hebrew word, but it's not. This is actually a Greek word. A Greek word. Uh, it's talking about a certain kind of song. Mizmor is the Hebrew word for what we're what we're doing when we're reading the Psalms. This is a mizmor. Okay, so the book of 
mizmors, if you want to, if you want to call it that way. It's a, a song sung to an instrumental accompaniment. Okay, so whatever you you see, psalm, uh, there's it's a song song to instrumental accompaniment. Now, not every one of these has psalm in front of it, but many of them are still sung with musical accompaniment. So why we would have to single these out, I think maybe whoever's compiling this, David didn't compile the book of Psalms, probably, probably somebody else did, but he wrote some of these psalms that they wanted to make sure we knew that this particular psalm, whichever one it is, uh, was a song that was sung with a musical accompaniment. And I have 37 times, so 37 times it says, of the Psalms of David. Now, we're, we're setting out that subset of 73, 74 Psalms, and we're asking how many of them say this is a Psalm of David, and it's 37. So 37 out of 73 Psalms. So an example of that is Psalm 3. Okay, Josh, go ahead and read. Um, why, don't you read why don't you read the whole thing? It's not very long. Okay. All right, and what does the rest of that beginning say there? It says, this is a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Do you remember David was a fugitive twice in his life? Once when he was young and later when he was old. He was fleeing from his own son who rose up against him by kissing babies and shaking hands and went in the favor of the people. And one of his advisors said to him, the people are not with you. You better get out of town. And he did. He had to flee for his life from his own son. How sad. And you know some of the events that followed that were even more tragic. But David left, and he found himself on the run for the second time in his life. And out of that comes the richness of this psalm. I, I laid down and I slept. I awoke again because the Lord sustained me. And then he's, he's saying how uh, I won't be afraid even if there's 10,000 that are surrounding me because the Lord is at my side. And then he, he calls out in figurative language, uh, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break out the teeth of the wicked. The jaw and the teeth are symbols of power. And so he's saying, take away the power from those who would fight against me, from those who would oppress me. And, and David is worshiping, and this worship often is uh, kind of a prayer as well. So that's the first um, form that these take. Um, we'll talk about themes in a little bit, but let's, let's look at another form here. A song. Can you believe this? We're in the Psalms and we're talking about a song. But actually, uh, this is the Hebrew word shir, and it uh, is a poem of a musical nature. And an example of that is Psalm 108. Um, you could look there if you want, but it, it says a song, and sometimes it will say a song of ascent. And so it couples up a, a couple different things related to this. And this is a poem of a musical nature. Not, not that much different from a psalm in a sense, but for whatever reason, they've labeled that uh, a song, and this is eight times in uh, the book of Psalms that are, that are David's anyway. There are others. Okay? And then, a miktam. Have you heard this word before? Okay, if you're reading through the, the opening credits, if you will, to these, to these Psalms, you're going to come across miktam, and you'll see miktam is there six times in the Psalms of David. And since we're not far away, why don't we look at uh, Psalm 16, okay? You'll see this here, a miktam of David, okay? I'm going to tell you, they don't exactly know what this word means. Scholars don't know exactly what this word means, but it's akin to a word that means to cover. And the nature of these psalms are things like prayers in moments of distress where you couldn't probably pray out loud. And so the thought is a silent prayer or a written psalm that needed to be at least initially spoken quietly, but when it came time to worship, I bet they didn't worry so much about that because they were in the situation where they could worship with the people of God. But when it was originally written, perhaps it was a response to some dire and distressing situation, and so we have Miktam. And you'll notice Miktam 
and the Hebrew word miktam are the same. That's because we don't know what exactly miktam means. All right. Next one, maskel. Have you heard of this before? The maskel. And we see this um, six times as well. And, of course, the Hebrew word for it is maskel. And this is a, a teaching song for gaining wisdom. Okay, so the song is written in order to gain wisdom. Sometimes have you noticed how in our worship songs they're sung to the Lord? And sometimes have you noticed how some of our songs it sounds like we're singing and encouraging each other? Okay, you know, like uh, some kind of teaching like, come on, everybody, let's worship the Lord. We're encouraging one another. It's not, it's not sung directly to the Lord, although it's for the Lord. But sometimes the direct address is to uh, the people, like let all God's people say amen, things like that. Okay? This in particular is a, uh, a teaching song for gaining wisdom. And the closest thing I can think of, of this, I thought of an example earlier today, is uh, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Remember that song when you were a kid? The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down, the floods came up, and the rains came down, the floods came up, and so on. And the house on the rock did something. Stood firm. Okay. And then the opposite happens. The rain came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand went splat. Okay. And the lesson is build your house upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. That's a mascal in a sense because it's a teaching psalm. It's teaching us something about God. I know it's not in the proper sense of mascal. We don't have it in our, our canon. But... It's a teaching song. It's a song for gaining wisdom. Psalm 32 is an example of that. Let's turn on over there and just take a look at the first couple verses of that. Psalm 32, it says, of David, a mascal. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. And so it's talking about uh, the wisdom of keeping short accounts with God, okay, and having our sins forgiven. Six times uh, Maskell is found in David's writings and maybe a couple more in some of the others. I'm not sure. I can't remember the overall statistics on that. And then we have what's called a prayer. Can you believe this? A prayer in the Psalms. And this is the Hebrew word tapila. I don't know exactly how to pronounce that, but that's uh, the word that we find. And this is simply, you would, as you would expect, a psalm addressed to God. Three times David writes these kinds of psalms. A lot of them are addressed to God, but, but this is labeled that way as a prayer unto the Lord. Psalm 17 is an example of that. And so we'll go back and just take a look at what that looks like. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear me, Lord. My plea is just, listen to my cry, hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. So we have a psalm that's addressed through prayer. This is, this is David, David's writings of these different kinds of psalms. The next one would be a petition. There's some dispute about this because it's not exactly known what uh, this word has uh, has a cure or has cure is related to the word Zechariah, the Lord remember. Okay, So we're, we're seeing a connection here. It's written either to get God's attention or to remember something that God has done. And we find this two times. One of them is Psalm 70. It's a call to remembrance. All right, And then uh, this one's a little bit strange and out there because we don't know what it means. Uh, Shagayan is how I might pronounce that, but I don't know how they would. And this is a song sung to an instrumental accompaniment, possibly, um, and there, there may be more to it than that. Uh, and it could be a song that's sung with uneven music, like a rhapsody, where you just don't know exactly where it's going to go at any particular moment, and you adjust to it. Okay, so Shagayan, and if you want an example of that, Psalm 7. If you want to turn back, we can take a look, Psalm 7, a Shagayan, and there's one other place where this is referred to, I think it's in the book of Amos. It talks about Shagayan uh, there. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue my life, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord, my God, I have, uh, I have done this, and there is guilt on my hands. 
if I have repaid my uh, ally with evil or without cause, have robbed my foe, then let let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. That's kind of negative, isn't it? But he's he's singing a song that's a plea to the Lord, and it's called uh, Shagayim. Okay, I don't think, uh, as I said, I don't think David categorized uh, these different poems. I think other people looked at them and said, this is what kind of song that is. But I think he wrote them, and someone else compiled them and put them in categories. Nevertheless, they tell us something, these titles do, about the versatility of David's worship, okay? We can get stuck in a bubble. Remember I was telling you a moment ago that we sing some songs unto the Lord. And when I was young in the Lord, I thought that's the only kind of worship we should sing. Why are we singing worship songs that are talking to other people or saying anything about God? Let's sing the highest quality of worship song, which is directly to the Lord. But that's not exactly how the psalm book works, is it? That there are songs that are saying to Israel, hey, come on, let's worship the Lord. There are songs that are sung directly to the Lord. Uh, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And there are other ones that are um, descriptions of what God is like. You know, uh, Psalm 97 talks about the hills melting like wax at the presence of the Lord. Um, God is our refuge and strength. This seems like a teaching kind of thing in Psalm 46. And so we see different ways that that's played out. And the thing I would encourage us in is that we not get dogmatic that we have to worship with one particular form of worship, that there's a lot of it out there. In fact, we don't do this a lot in our tradition, but there are in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, there are antiphonal, antiphonal, that's the right word, antiphonal songs where one group sings to the other. Have you seen that? I remember when I was a kid, we used to sing songs. We called it In the Round, where one person would sing and then somebody else would come in and sing another part. But there's also the kinds that one person sing or one side sings and then the other respond. And that's in Scripture too. And so we can't get locked into one particular way of worshiping. Uh, David wasn't like that. He was a He was a worshiper. Now, the next thing I want to talk about here is related to this, and it's the fact that David was a poet. Okay, he was a poet. David he experienced God in a lot of different experiences of life. Um, in the field, as he's watching the sheep, imagine in his parents' house. Um, in the uh, in the palace with Saul. Okay, on the run. Later in the palace, when he was when he was king, on the run again, uh, in battle. He experienced a lot of God's faithfulness and a lot of the way that God worked. And so he had all of these different experiences, and he knew how to describe what God was like and the different circumstances with real imagination. And sometimes uh, what we encounter really defies description. Like if we sat down and tried to describe it, maybe we wouldn't be able to. And sometimes we can get lost in abstraction where we, we talk about something, but it gets too... It gets too far out there, too detached from the concrete world, and it's hard to describe that. It gets nebulous, and we even the word nebulous and even abstraction, those are words that <laughs> they hint at what I'm talking about here. But uh, And there are times that what we describe seems more distant. Sometimes we get bogged down with qualifications, like uh, it's a scientific thing to say of the people and things in this world that God is most important. Okay. Of all the people and God in this world, uh, God is most important. Okay. That's kind of a scientific type statement. Uh, it's a poetic thing to say, you're everything to me. Okay. You see, we're kind of saying the same thing there. Like, it's one thing to say, of all the people that are out there, and all the things that are out there, God, you're most important to me. Okay. That's true, right? But a poetic way to say the same thing would be, God, you're my everything. You're my everything. Do you see what I'm saying there? That it's, it's like saying the same thing. One is a scientific description that tries to make sure we're accurate. The other is more of an emotional response that tries to express what our heart is towards God. Okay? And so there's the poetic and the scientific. It's, um, it's poetic to say that you're everything to me. It's scientific to say 
that against the nation of Israel, against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against my wives, against you, I have sinned. Hey, that's scientific because we're, we're trying to cover all the bases. But it's poetic to say, against you and you alone have I sinned. Okay? You see, he's saying the same thing. David, in saying that in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned, he's not saying that he hasn't sinned in those other areas. He's isolating as superior one particular relationship and saying this of all relationships is most important, so important that my sin against others in comparison with you is like nothing. You see that? It's poetic and the scientific. And those things run parallel to each other, but sometimes when you speak in a poetic way, it's not exact like the scientific way. And a lot of Psalms deals in this kind of thing. This might be a a boring way to approach this, but I really wanted to bring out the idea tonight that David was a poet, and he thought about things in a glorious way, and you see that begin to unwrap as we we go through the Psalms. Okay, so um, both are true, but one cares more about uh, God than everything else. Walter Brueggemann in his book, I'm not a fan of everything he says, but he um, draws from a quote by Walt Whitman. He says, after the engineers and inventors and scientists, after all such control through knowledge, finally comes the poet, shattering evocative speech that breaks fixed conclusions and presses us always toward new, dangerous, imaginative possibilities. And what he's trying to say is that there is scientific language about God But oftentimes, the language of worship is a poetic language in which we're expressing our heart, we're expressing affection, our emotion, and we want to say things that are true about God, but oftentimes, we need to shatter out of language that can control and realize we're describing describing one who is beyond description. I don't know if you thought about this, but a lot of the things that we use to uh, define what God is like are negations, okay? You know what a negation is when you say it's not like this, it's not like that. Okay, and when we're talking about God, we'd say He's not like this, He's not like that. Do you know that uh, finite is a positive term, and infinite is the negation of finite? It says no, He's not finite. You see what I'm saying? That it's a negation. It's saying He's not like that. Okay, and so we see a lot of that. Uh, A. W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, talks about this. That a lot of the ways that we we get close to God is not by describing uh, so much what he's like, but what he's not like. And he's not like us in many ways. He's like us in some ways, but he has some of those, what they call, um, now I can't even think of the word, but it has to do with those characteristics that can't, incommunicable <laughs> characteristics. There's a negative term again, isn't it? Because communicable is the positive side. Incommunicable means that it can't be passed on to us. And there are some traits about God that are like that. Like none of us, as much as we'd hope to be, are, are omnipresent. Right? We're, and none of us are infinite. We're finite. And so um, there are some ways that he's not like us. And, and it's hard to describe exactly what he's like. Okay. So we learn something here from the worship of David that he doesn't, he doesn't only use scientific language about God, but he uses poetic language and images borrow from the world that he knows. And so I wanted to talk quickly about this, and if this is super nerdy and it bogs, bogs you down, then um, you can check out for a couple minutes, and then we'll be right back after our commercial break here. But uh, the first thing is um, that I want to talk about how words can have two kinds of meaning. Two kinds of meaning. Think, think about this for a moment. The first kind of meaning that it might have is denotation. Okay? So what this means is this is what would, we would describe as a dictionary definition of a word. Okay? Let's take the word house for a moment or home. Let's, call it, let's say home. Okay? How might we define that from the dictionary? A place where someone lives, right? We, that's a that's a denot, denotative definition of that word, but the other way that we can look at this um, is through connotation, and th- this has to do with the feelings and attitudes and associations that come with the word. So when you say home, what might we be thinking of if we're using this kind of definition? Hmm? Family, okay, safety, 
security, you know, um, comfort, uh, belonging, retreat. Like you think of home, you think of a place you can go and get away from the pressures and cares of the world and be in your element. Okay, so one's a, that's not how you would necessarily define it in the dictionary, but that's how you might define it. If somebody said home in a poetic sense, you might not think necessarily of the place where somebody lives, but you might think of uh, if you say that that God is the soul's home, you might be saying that he's our place of safety and real belonging, okay? Not just the place where we live, although in that particular scenario, it could be both. But I wanted to mention this, that one flows from the other. We only know what connotative meaning is from first knowing the denotative meaning, okay? So we know the dictionary definition of home is a place where somebody lives, and so the other ideas flow from that. And uh, in Scripture, we need to know not every word is used figuratively. Uh, often a home is just a home, and often a rock is just a rock. So we will come across this in just a minute. David uses the word rock in his worship in a figurative way. Okay? But when David went to slay Goliath, he didn't pick up a figurative rock. He picked up an actual rock, stone, Right? And it doesn't carry with it when we interpret that passage, all the connotative meaning. It's talking about the literal meaning. David picked up five smooth stones, and he went and threw those rocks at Goliath. Not five feelings of comfort and belonging and family and all of that. No, they're rocks. You see what I'm saying? That context will tell us the difference between those two things. But we need to understand them the way Scripture intends us to. And Psalms is one of those places and the prophets are there too, where there's a lot of figurative language that we need to try to come to terms with, what is being said in this moment. And so um, let's leave it at that. I just want you to know that you don't need to know all that to get into heaven. It just might make Bible study easier. Okay. Uh, the images used in Psalms and uh, the songs mean more than their definition. Usually, we can tell what the Bible is saying, whether it's being figurative, poetic, connotative, or whether it's being more literal or denotative, um, by context. Context is the clue. And it's usually meant that it's, it's usually meaning one or the other and usually not both. With poetry, I'd like you to notice how David, with poetry, he, he describes different things in, in this kind of way that we're talking about, the, the poetic way. He tells how he feels. In, I think, Psalm 60 or 61, he says um, that I long for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Is he talking about being thirsty physically? No, he's thirsty for God, for God's presence. And so we see him using poetic language to describe how he feels. He talks about his troubles. I've fallen into a miry pit a pit full of muck and mire. He brought me out of that miry pit and set me on a rock. He talks about his enemies. This is, uh, I think this is Psalm 59. They return at evening snarling like dogs. They prowl about the city. You get a picture there. It's a poetic picture. He talks about their attacks. The words from their lips are sharp as swords. He talks about the blessings of God, green pastures and still waters. It's blessings of God that he's talking about. None of us just want to, maybe we do, maybe we'd like to have a lawn chair and sit in green pastures beside still water. That'd be nice. But there's more to it than this. You have to think of it as a, a sheep would. A sheep, is that the right word? Okay, you have to think about it as a sheep would as they're eating the grass and what the cool waters mean. It's, it's places of refreshing and rest. It's more than just... Um, than what we would see naturally. And then we talk about the vindication of God where he's the glory and the lifter of our heads, Psalm 3. He lifts up our heads. Four times in Scripture it talks about God as the lifter of our heads. And and three of those four times it's talking about about someone taking someone from a lowly position and putting them in a place of royalty. The lifter of the head, that's God doing that very thing, vindicating his people and bringing them in. And then he talks about the Lord, what he's like. The Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd. That one word says so much, doesn't it? Care, discipline, uh, nourishment, leading. A whole lot can be said figuratively if we know the clues. 
and then God is his rock. Okay, so we want to ask questions when we come to these. What what feelings um, or emotions, what thoughts, what kind of uh, things is, do these images evoke? And the answer, the answers include fear and repulsion and helplessness and confinement and terror and disgust and outrage and peace and joy and all of the things that might come with the images that he gives. His favorite image for God, can anybody think of what it is? What's uh, David's favorite image of God? And I'll give you a clue. It's not that the Lord is my shepherd. That might be his favorite, but I'm basing on which one does he use most. Rock. That's it. God is my rock. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. Um, Thirteen different times he uses that figuratively throughout his psalms. The Lord, my rock. Um, And he's not the first. Jacob first said it when he was blessing his sons in Genesis 49, and then Moses said it in Deuteronomy 32, and then Hannah said it in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, and I wonder if David was encouraged in it by Samuel, who's the son of Hannah, uh, because he says it in 2 Samuel 22 and in many of the Psalms. And David uses this image more than any other. And here's, here's what I think this comes to, is that when he says, that the Lord is my rock, you, you have to think about it not in our terms, like we've got dynamite, we can blast things out with heavy equipment and bust things up, and uh, we've got jackhammers and all of that. But when you're thinking about it from David's perspective, a rock is something that would be one of the most impervious solidities in his day. Like If you need a place to rest, if you need a place to keep you safe from arrows and swords and people uh, throwing boulders at you, you get where the rocks are. You hide out in the rocks, and David did that often. David hid from King Saul among the rocks in the Judean wilderness. And so when he calls God his rock, he doesn't mean um, the dictionary definition, the denotative definition, that it's this large mass of stony matter, usually compounded by two or more simple minerals, either bedded in the earth or resting on the earth's surface. He's not talking about that, is he? He's talking about the Lord being his, his shelter, his place of safety, his protection. And from that, it's only a short step to seeing God as Redeemer and Savior and Deliverer. Psalm 62, Psalm 78, Psalm 95, those are examples of that. So David, he's a poet when he writes these things. And, and I would encourage you, when we sing songs, sometimes we're going to get these poetic images that come up and we can sometimes just sing right through them, like your love, O Lord, is like a mighty mountain. Maybe one example of that. Think about what that's supposed to mean. How, what, kind of, what kind of thing that ought to uh, draw out of us. David was a poet, and I'm so thankful the book of Psalms isn't written in scientific language or even, even deep theological language, though theology is there. But it's written poetically. And we need that aspect of our life. We use, we use language to get what we want, to manipulate, to discover and bring this world under our control. And it becomes a place of power. But when we come to the poetic, I think we're more in a place of response where the language becomes bigger than our control. So here we have David talking about God in these rich ways. He was, not only was he a, uh, well, there's home. Not only was he a poet, but he was a theologian. Okay, David was a theologian means that he had great understanding about God. Somebody said this one time. I can't remember who said it, but everyone's a theologian. The issue is, are you a good one or a bad one? Okay, we all have views of God. Okay, and uh, the question is, are those views good and consistent, or are they bad and inconsistent? Because I think every one of us has a theology, We don't maybe like that word, but theology just means discourse about God, thoughts about God, language about God, words about God. And so we all have that. If we're Christians, we're talking about God. Even the non-Christians have a theology. They wouldn't wouldn't admit it, but they do. There's There's thoughts about God, and sometimes we hear people say, this is what I think God is like. When you hear that, you're talking to a theologian. Better listen, because their theology could be bad or good. But... We're all theologians. And David, 
was a theologian, and he said some things to us about God that teach us about God. Anybody want to know what his favorite word for God was? Take guess if you want. There's lots of different words for God. Do you know that in the Bible? El Shaddai, um, Elohim, El, um, Yahweh, Adonai, different words for God in the Old Testament. His favorite word for God in the Psalms, and his Psalms that he wrote is Yahweh. Okay, He used it twice as much as the word, just the plain generic word, if this bothers you. Some words are are vague descriptors, and some words are more personal. And so the word that uh, we would translate just God, G-O-D, is an impersonal title. Okay, But the word that is the personal name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Okay? They didn't have to write the vowels, so a lot of times when they transliterate, it's just Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And uh, that's how God revealed himself to Moses. And it means something along the lines of the one that exists or I am that I am. Okay? I am that I am, I think, is... Uh, first person, Yahweh is more of a third person, like he is, he exists. Okay. So this is the, the image that David chooses to use when he writes his psalms, which tells me he's speaking very personally about God. Do you know that in later times, especially in the rabbinical times, uh, people refused to write the name Yahweh because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain? Okay. And I understand the caution that's with that. But do you know that the writers of Scripture had no hesitancy about saying the name of God where it was appropriate? And that's because they were drawing upon a personal and relational God. They were talking about a personal and relational God. They were talking to a personal and relational God. If you have a a newer translation, you'll see sometimes the, the word LORD spelled out in all caps. And when you see all caps... Uh, that means that it's the name Yahweh. They're just putting the word Lord there to as a placeholder to let us know what that's talking about. They, they often uh, translated that with Adonai or put Adonai in there in order to avoid saying the name Yahweh so they didn't use that name in vain. Uh, by the way, we're not doing that tonight because we, we're talking about him in a meaning, I think, in a meaningful way. Um, but when you see it in lowercase, it's capital L, but lowercase O-R-D, then often that just means Adonai, which is Lord. Um, it, would be, it would be not the personal name, but it would be a title about God. So he uses the name Yahweh as he talks about God 364 times. The next closest word for God is um, Elohim, which is 178. And as you would expect, Yahweh is the most prominent noun in the Psalms of David. More than any other noun, Yahweh is there. For David, God is personal and not distant. Even in his troubles, he knows God is with him. He trusts in the Lord. He believes that God will fulfill his promise to him. Some of the great theological themes you'll find in Psalms is God is great. And what do you think the pair to that one is? God is great. God is good, right? We said that all the time when I was growing up. I didn't realize those are the, the two main branches in Christian theology, the greatness of God, the goodness of God. We can, we can categorize almost all of his other attributes under those two. You see God being great, God being good, God is personal. He's not uh, abstract. He's not a force. He's not, I mean, he is a force, but he's a personal force, if that makes sense. Um, he's more than just like the the local gods of, of uh, pagan religions. He is omnipresent, he, which means what? What does omnipresent mean? He's everywhere. He's everywhere present. He's omnipotent. What does that mean? What does potent, what does potent mean? Power, powerful, right? And omni is the word for all, all-powerful. He he's, uh, has all power. And then omniscient. He has all knowledge. God is near. We see that in uh, uh, Psalm 139. If I, if I ride, rise to the highest heights, you are there. If I make my bed in the deep, you're there. Wherever I go, you're there. I can't get away from you. God's there. 
We see God as just, God as protector, God as merciful, God as Savior, and God as faithful. You'll find in the songs of David um, true worship. He was he was a theologian, and finally tonight, as we bring this to a close, he was a worshiper. We'll uh, we'll come back to that thought in just a moment, but he was a worshiper. Somebody said that all theology must end in doxology. Doxology, if theology is a word on God, uh, doxa is the word for glory. It's a word of glory. And so theology, right thinking about God, ought to lead to worship. Okay, that's the point that we want to make with that, that, that good thinking about God, that if David's a good theologian, it ought to lead to worship. I'm not sure who first said it, but what it means is that truth about God leads to a life of worship. And David was a worshiper just as we need to be. His thoughts about God didn't end with important musings like maybe we could do tonight if we if we just said, oh, that was, that was, those are some good thoughts and I'm going to have to think about that. And then we go away and we don't become worshipers of God. Then we haven't fulfilled our mission because our mission is to be out of all of this that we're thinking about and knowing about is to be worshipers. Okay. The first mention of David. Anybody know where the first mention of David is? It surprised me. It's in the genealogy of Ruth at the end of the book of Ruth. It mentions David. And it talks about how she gives birth to Obed, and then follows the line down, who is the father of David, and it mentions David. And then we don't hear David's name again until um, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it's just after he's been anointed. As I was reading that passage today, it never struck me before, but the way that it's written, it has Samuel going to Jesse's house, um, feeling like the oldest son is the rightful choice to be anointed, remember? And then if it's not him, surely this guy, he looks pretty good. Nope, this guy, he looks pretty good. And uh, the Lord says, uh, don't look upon the outward appearance, because that's what man does. But look upon the heart. That's where God looks. And Samuel says, do you have any others? (laughs) Can you imagine how Jesse felt? (laughs) Samuel's just rejected all of his boys as potential king. He thinks, I got one more, but do you realize the... The undertones of this, they didn't even think David was important enough to bring him in. So I got another son, but he watches the sheep. Well, go get him. We'll all wait. That's exactly how it goes. They all have to wait. And here comes David, and it says of him that he's ruddy, whatever that means. Could have red skin, could have red hair. Um, But whatever it was, they bring him in, and they anoint him, and after the anointing, it says that Samuel poured the anointing upon him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and his name was David. So it gives us through all the, all, all the way through the drama, and we already know it. We probably hadn't thought about this because we already know who this is, but if you're reading this for the first time, you don't get the name until after the anointing. And then that's in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. The very next verse is when we hear that Saul has uh, demonic oppression upon him or possession upon him. And uh, we see that begin to play out in verse 14 through 23, where David is called, uh, Saul was tormented by an evil spirit, verse 14. In verse 15, Saul's attendants say to him, find someone who will play the the, the lyre, the lyra. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the kenor, and you'll feel better. This is probably not a harp. This is probably something similar it wouldn't look like a guitar because there's not a neck, but it's it would look like a heart but with a box at the bottom, and it was probably the strings were made out of the intestines of sheep. And so that's what he was to play. It would have been something similar in sound, I imagine, more to a guitar than it would to, uh, to uh, a harp. Bring somebody who can play that, and you'll feel better. And Saul said to his attendants, Okay, find somebody who will bring, who will play it well and bring him. Bring him here. And so the attendant said to Saul, uh, the son of Jesse plays the lyre, and he's brave, and he speaks well, and he's fine-looking, and the Lord is with him. 
So Saul sends a message to Jesse, send me your son David. After a period of time of being there, Saul was pleased with David and asked him to stay on and asked Jesse if he could stay on. And it tells us in verse 23 that when Saul was tormented, that David would play and Saul would feel better and the spirit would leave. So already we have, and this is, when does uh, the slaying of Goliath happen? Next chapter, chapter 17. Chapter 16, the first part's the anointing. The second part of chapter 16 is Saul, uh, David playing and Saul being relieved of this evil spirit for a period of time. And then we have David back home somehow and going to battle with Goliath. And so we see from an early age that he's a worshiper. Okay, he's, What do you think he's playing? He's not playing the uh, Casey Kasem's uh, Top 100 some of you don't even know who Casey Kasem is. <laughs> You're too young. All right. He's not playing, he's not playing the uh, Billboard's Top 100. He's playing worship songs to the Lord. And I think, I, just, I don't know exactly how all this works, but I don't think the demon's like that. And so it left for a period of time while the song was being played. Um, but this is David being a worshiper. We see this. Throughout uh, his life in Second Samuel 22, he sang of the victories God gave him. And in Psalm 23, verses 1 through 7, it said these were his last words. It doesn't mean they were the last words he ever spoke. It meant these, this is like his last will and testament. And in so, he acknowledges as the source of his position, as God is the source of his position. In Second uh, Samuel 23, in verse 1, he calls himself, listen, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David called himself that, that you, O Lord, have allowed me to become the sweet psalmist of Israel. And then in verse 2, he says, the Lord spake through me, the Lord spoke through me. And so he's a prophet. And in verse 5, he acknowledges through this psalm that he's the patriarch for the Davidic dynasty and the messianic line. My dynasty is approved by God, he says. He did more than anyone else to establish musical worship. At the house of God, of course, for him it was um, the tabernacle, and you may not know this, but after um, during Saul's reign, or right after, right before Saul's reign, a bunch of guys decided that they wanted to beat the Philistines, and they'd heard stories about how Israel had taken the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and if they, and when they went into battle, they were victorious, and so some guys, without talking to the Lord about it, decided we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle and win as if it's a good luck charm. And they go into battle, and they get routed, and the Ark of the Covenant gets taken. And it goes into the house of Dagon, and you remember the events that happen. The statue falls over, and everybody gets boils. And they're like, we don't want this thing. It's bad luck. They put it on a cart, and they shove it in the general direction of Israel. Somebody finds it, brings it into their house, and it's there for a great period of time, I think 30 years. And it happens to be the house of Uzzah's father, where it was. So remember Uzzah, later on when David decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, they put it on a cart. They're moving it like the Philistines move it, not like God told them to. And they come to the threshing floor and it, the oxen stumbles and it gets ready to fall off. And Uzzah, because he's so familiar with this Ark being in his house, reaches up like he would any piece of furniture and touches it. And God strikes him dead. And David's like, uh, plan B, and he sends it into somebody else's house. They get blessed out of their socks. And he's like, well, let's try this again. And so this time they do it right. They bring it up, and David is worshiping. He's dancing before the Lord with all of his might. Do you remember that? Worshiping. And Saul's daughter, Michael, is looking down at him from a high position as he's coming into the city. And when he comes up, she has no nice words for him. Do you remember? You're the king of Israel, and you've been dancing around with the young ladies like that, throwing off your outer garment, dancing around in your underwear. Now, don't picture BVDs or Fruit of the Loom. This is more modest than all of that. It's a full undergarment. It's like what you might wear to bed at night if you were living in Ebenezer Scrooge's day. Okay, so you can picture something like that, but he's dancing, and David says, oh, you think I've become undignified, huh? Well, I'll become even more undignified than this. But as for you, and uh, he issues some 
Not so nice words for her. But the fact is that you'll either worship God or you'll become a critic of those who do. And David was a worshiper, and Michael was a critic. He was a worshiper. And we need to worship God. And David wasn't a perfect man. He wrote psalms. He wasn't perfect. He failed in big ways. We still sing his songs because they're songs that are true about God. And so I want to encourage us, let's recognize that. Look at what he did for the institution of worship. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to uh, the city of Jerusalem where it could be near uh, his palace and it could become the center not only of uh, the seat of political power but of religious power in Jerusalem. First uh, Chronicles 6.31, he begins to put people in charge of the music of the sanctuary. First Chronicles 15.16 um, he says to them, you're to sing loud, loudly and joyfully. Okay, So this is coming right from the top. He's saying to them, I don't care how you feel, priests, when it's time to sing. I don't care how you feel, what's going on. I want you to sing loudly and joyfully to the Lord. So this is the kind of worship that he instituted. Um, and then he wrote songs to have sung in the tabernacle, First Chronicles 16, 7 through 36. Second Chronicles 29, 30, when, it, when uh, long after David was gone, Hezekiah gave an order to the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and Asaph. In Ezekiel, Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, after their turn from exile, they praised as prescribed by David. So remember, they go into exile, God's people, and then 70 years and some longer, after 70 years, they came back. What did they do? They got their bearings again on worship by looking at what David had prescribed. He's a worshiper. Okay? And then Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 24, talks about the antiphonal singing that took place, music and song leaders as prescribed by David. And then Amos 6, 5, Amos is actually rebuking somebody, but he talks about some people who they're... They're singing the songs, but they're not actually worshiping with their lives. They're singing the songs like David. They strum on harps like David, and it actually uses a word for harps there, but they're not really living lives that are consistent with, with God. And so David's life was one where it was a life of worship and song, which is important. Of all religions, I'm telling you, Christianity and Judaism before it, we are a song-singing bunch. And what does it do to sing songs? Anybody have an idea? Are we just like getting together our allegiances and saying those again and again every week? Well, maybe. But don't songs also inspire us to think great thoughts about God? Have you noticed how music sticks to your soul? I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have, that I can hear a song somewhere, and like later on throughout the day, at some point, I just start finding myself start singing it. And worship songs, I find myself singing it if it's a catchy tune. Somehow it sticks to your soul and it moves us with emotion. I think that's really an important part of what we do. We're not just we're not just um, you know popsicle sticks with this big massive cranium on top, and we're just thinkers and heads. We're more than that. We're hearts and hands. We're worshippers. All of his experience with God translated to being a worshipper. And a worshiper, after all, is someone who has God and humanity and the right relationship to one another. You know that God is above us, and we are his children, and we are his servants. I know that sometimes we don't like to hear that because we've heard Jesus say, You're, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. But you realize after that that there are other places in the New Testament where people are still called servants. It's not either or. It's both and. It's just, they're just metaphors for how we relate to God. And we are his children because his spirit has been put in us, but we serve him as well. And if David is an example of worshiping, where he has his relationship with God in the right order, uh, he's one who sees God in all areas of his life. He sees God as present in all areas of, our li- of his life. And that's what we ought to do is we ought to recognize that we're not, we're not just in God's presence when we come here. We're in God's presence when we're out there and we're at home. Where, wherever we are, God's presence is there. He realizes he can call upon him in trouble. And he thanks him when the trouble's been resolved. And he praises him for who he is. A, a true worshiper is one who sees any other God as inferior to Yahweh. 
And this is the kind of worshiper that David was, and this is the kind of worshiper we should be. So I'm calling us to that. I'm challenging us to that, myself included. I'm not saying you do this. Let's, let's all be better worshipers. David was a worshiper. And uh, here's the other thing. We don't always like all the songs that we come to sing. Um, I've told you before that when I was young, I liked certain kinds of songs and didn't like others. If the song's about the Lord, let's worship the Lord. Okay? Yeah. Some styles I don't like. Some songs I like better than others. That's not the point. We're not the point of this. God's the point. And so when we come to worship, sometimes we can set that. We should be able to set those things aside and truly worship the Lord. Let's be worshipers like David was. Thanks for your attention. I got done right on time. If we pray real quick, we can be done before it turns 816. Stand with me if you would. Father, we uh, are asking, Lord, that you help us to be true worshipers like David was. We don't want to be all head and no heart. Um, We don't want our theology just to be a dead end, but let that lead into true praise and worship, giving glory to the great God who we thought great thoughts about. And I pray, Lord, that not only our words in song, but our lives would be an expression of our worship towards you. Help us to live unto you as David did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.